my introduction to crypto would have been with Mt. Gox in 2014. And so I ended up representing some of the largest claim holders in that case. And if you're not familiar, I mean, that was you know, supposed to be the end of crypto back then. Over 70% of the world's Bitcoin was trapped on Gox when it went into bankruptcy. And so at the time, the clients that I represented and, and still represent since they have not received distributions in that case to date, still, at the time, I thought they were speaking Greek to me. I, I really didn't understand what they were talking about with blockchain and the ledger and everything else, but I learned to truly appreciate it and, and see its benefits. And so just to give you an idea, I mean, one of my clients was the third person to ever do a Bitcoin transaction ever on ledger. So. I learned quite a bit from them. Yo, GM, GM guys, what is good? The crypto market is exploding. Is the ETF coming? Um, the attention economy is all over the place. There is a million spaces this morning. Holy Jesus. Adam, what is good? Is your connection uh, doing okay? <laughs> We're hanging in there, brother. We're hanging in there, man. For anybody who doesn't know, I'm in Costa Rica. And up until about a month ago, I had the best connection, best internet in Costa Rica, 150 bucks a month. I was paying for my internet. Super happy, thrilled. I could do spaces, Zooms. YouTube didn't matter, rock solid. And about a month ago, uh, something happened to the company. So now I am going to have to change providers. Um, here we are. Jake's like, get Starlink, bro. Get Starlink, man. I'm thinking like dedicated, you know, T1 line, but we'll see, man. We got, we got to figure this baby out because this is outrageous. But anyway, great to be here, brother. Yeah, Chris has Starlink. I know it works well out here in Las Vegas. What's good, bro? GM, how are you feeling? Uh, about the markets, uh, your favorite coin Solana is up massive. GM, GM, welcome to the vault. Crazy weekend. Um, the market is just ripping. Somehow we're in some good coins. So we're having a good time. Adam, this internet, I don't know if you can hear it, but it is pristine, my brother. We need to get you on board. <laughs> so uh, looking forward to a crazy episode. Let's get it going. Yeah, I'm personally excited um, about this episode. RWAs have uh, been in talks, uh, in discussion for a while. I think the first one I ever heard about was about two years ago at NFT Miami. People were tokenizing autographs, and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then all of a sudden, 4K comes out of nowhere, starts tokenizing Rolexes, and I start seeing it all over Arcade, and I'm like, what is going on here? So, Richard, I appreciate you for uh, for coming on, man. How's it going? Good. How you guys doing? Thanks for having me on Really, really appreciate it. We also have found on stage. Um, I'm not sure who, who's behind the account, but GM to you guys. Thanks for joining us. Hey, GM. This is Nick here in Texas. And I'll say with the Starlink, got to be careful. We, uh, we're out here like in the, uh, the boonies of Texas and we use Starlink. And it's been like really slow since the conflict uh, in Israel heated up. So I think Elon's like relocated those satellites. But hey, thanks for having me on. Pleasure to, to speak on RWAs. Yeah, pre appreciate it, Nick. Um, you know, the crypto market's up. Tokenizing assets has been um, in discussion, as I said, for, for a while. Um, we also saw Courtyard recently started tokenizing Pokemon cards. But really, first the scene, at least from my understanding, was was Arcade, or I mean, uh, 4K on Arcade when I started seeing all these borrowing and lending practices. Uh, so, Richard, if we'd like to just start off with you a little bit, just tell us a little bit um, about your journey into, into crypto and NFTs and how you... Um, I guess, discovered the idea of tokenizing real-world assets that led you to um, putting Rolexes on the blockchain. Cool. Awesome. So I think the, for 
you know, background context here was uh, just been in crypto a long time, was on the uh, original mailing list. And so I think the first, I think the indication of this that historically was around 2014 when uh, color coins came out. So this was like, uh, it just back then was just Bitcoin. So it was color coins. And then it became, um, there was always this kind of narrative. It was like, I was always pulling around. I was like, well, how do you get physical assets or tokenizing physical assets? Um, how do you get it on chain? It's kind of the narrative. And then around 2016, 2017, there was like the first company that kind of popped up to try to do this. Uh, it was called, uh, still kind of around today, surprisingly, uh, Materium. And then there was a, a slew of other ones. The big one being Harbor. That was a $23 million funded company by uh, A16Z to bring real estate on chain. But there was a mismatch in demographics between um, your average crypto degen and somebody that buys a 7% retirement home in Atlantic City. So that failed. Um, you know, there's been a ton of them. Um, and so for me, it was always like, I was actively investing at the time. I ran a venture fund and I was like, well, trying to invest in this very thesis, right? I think the core thesis is pretty obvious. It's like, well, it just makes sense to tokenize these assets and bring them on chains, but who's going to do it? How is it be, and how the implementation was going to work was the key question, also timing. And so I talked to every single company for a long time. Um, you know, I named them all, it's a ton of them. And I thought, well, someone has to do this. And whoever does this, it's an inevitability, is going to be immensely valuable in terms of providing value for the greater crypto ecosystem, but simultaneously be able to capture significant market share. And I also think that it is a natural transgression between you know, Web 1, uh, which was like, I guess, like Craigslist to a certain extent, Web 2, which is kind of like eBay, StockX, it's like a curation uh, and filtering layer. And then some Web 3 where you basically unlock um, the financialization, global uh, liquidity, borderless, etc. So I think it was an inevitability. Um, and so I thought, well, there has to be a good way to do this. There has to be two type of ways. There should be a centralized way of doing this, and there should be a, arguably some form of protocol, a decentralized way of doing this. And so that's kind of where it started. Um, yeah, that's kind of where it started. Was just, um, it wasn't it wasn't for me. It wasn't like, hey, NFTs are hot. Let me start an NFT company. It was more like, this is a core thesis of mine for many years. It's an it's something that I believe that will fundamentally change how the world interacts with these type of assets. Um, it, um, it's a magnitude, it represents a magnitude of improvement over existing systems, not like a feature set improvement. And uh, once you start kind of learning more about this and you start understanding why and how and what they can really do, it becomes a, pretty much becomes a no-brainer. What do you think's been like the biggest hurdle to overcome? I mean, I have my opinions, but I'm outside of the space. You're, you're deep into it. What's been like the, is it a technical challenge? Is it a, just an awareness? What's been the, the main thing that's like, oh, we've kind of finally overcome that hurdle right. um, now? What do, what do you think has been the biggest it, challenge? For physical assets, it's been really two things. And that's the core two problem, uh, the two core problems we solve here at 4K. The first problem is trust. This asset has to become as trustless as possible on-chain. And so how do you solve the problem of trust? In crypto, we assume we trust no one. You know, we essentially trust no one. And so not your keys, not your uh, coins. And so that concept, how does it translate into a bigger asset trust, trustless? Well, if, if, I, if I'm rich and I issue, you know, uh, and I start issuing Rolexes, and I was like, oh, this is a Rolex, and like, you should trust me. I'm like Richard's, you know, uh, watch emporium. Well, what happens when there's fractional reserve? What happens if they start misrepresenting? What if they're inauthentic? What if they, you know, tokenize an asset, you get, you get a loan against it, but then they sell the asset in, in real life. So you have the problem of trust. And this is why a protocol like 4K is needed. 
The second biggest problem I call is the pseudonymous wallet problem. What I mean by this is that if I tokenize a Lambo and I keep it and an anonymous wallet holds it for 10 years, who pays for maintenance, storage, and insurance? Right? There's no way to charge somebody. There's no way to build somebody. There's no way, there's no on-chain concept for that. And so that's something we invented uh, created here was uh, this concept of like on-chain vaulting insurance, which acts kind of like a software, like a SaaS or software subscription fee service attached to a token. So if you don't pay your fees, like a public storage unit, it goes off to auction um, automatically. So I think someone had to come in here and really tackle these two core problems. The first one being trust, the second one being this like um, payment problem or this fee problem. Adam, we might have to talk with Richard about vault insurance as as Emblem Vault. That's something that we have actually discussed uh, a lot of times. So we might have to dive into that a little bit. Uh, one final question for me, and, and then we'll talk with Nick a little bit afterwards. You know, tokenizing uh, physical assets, there's kind of this, this storage facility um, or this like intermediary to where these assets are physically held. When we, we had talked with Courtyard um, a few weeks ago, and they were storing their stuff using Brinks um, of some sort. So how, how does uh, 4K go about um, storing some of these like high-value assets where I have 4K pulled up on the live stream right now? And you have things from electronics to sneakers to watches to fashion cards. It's a, a wide variety of items that uh, 4K is, is storing. Yeah, so we have a facility in uh, Delaware. It's the same facility that Christie's and Sotheby's uses to store their um, high-end art and other antiques and collectibles. Uh, you know, state of the art. Uh, it's staffed twenty like nine to five Monday to Wednesday. Top of the line insurance, got biometrics, multiple surveillance systems, etc. We also have a lab in there, um, so we can authenticate certain assets. We also have third-party authenticators that can help authenticate other assets. So we authenticate watches. We have a lab for watches, essentially. We have like scientific tooling in there. Um, probably one of the most advanced labs out there in the United States. Um, so that's how it kind of is. But the goal of 4K here is that you know our facility is just the first node, physical storage node on the network, on the protocol. The protocol, in order for this type of assets to become scalable, you can't have somebody in Singapore send assets to America and deal with customs taxes. It's just not plausible. There's a great company that did this. Uh, a metaphor for would be uh, TransferWise or WISE. And so they do form uh, Forex exchange or remittances. And so if you move money to Lithuania, if you're moving US dollar, they don't actually uh, like convert the US dollar to the local currency. They have bank accounts in both countries, debit one and subtract the other. Or subtract one and add it to your, uh, in, in the other country. And so the money in the asset should generally not leave borders because we found out is that as soon as it starts leaving borders, um, it gets really complicated very quickly. It becomes an exponential problem to solve for. And it's a lot of logistical problems, taxation problems. And so 4K goal here is to have storage facilities not run by us, by people who want to join the protocol, located all around the world in major hubs where these assets are commonly traded, like Singapore, Middle East, um, you know, uh, Hong Kong, et cetera. And then they can actually, uh, you know, participate and they can actually become, have their own authenticators and world appraisers and these assets on chain. So what I realized is that a protocol, a worldwide network is key here. Now, the second thing too is, and I think this is, um, and it's going to be an iteration on vaulting is that I think it's cool. Corea works with, um, Brinks. Great. But are they, is Brinks like a web three company? Takes them, I think two weeks to ship something for us. It's like, Hey, you want to see an asset? We'll set up a Zoom call with you for five bucks. We'll pull any asset out of the vault for you. Live stream. We can live stream these assets. Um, we build all the a lot of the hard tech behind it. Um, international DeFi protocols, etc. We do overnight in the United States. And I think, I think 
you know, what it really takes is instead of trying to find like a Web2 solution, because we tried, we worked with Mocha Meet, the biggest store of physical assets in the world. Um, we tried to think of how we can fit our model, a Web3-centric model, into the existing Web2 systems. And it was just too inflexible. Insurance was a problem. Shipping logistics was a problem. Taxation was a problem. You know, providing the proof of the asset was a problem. And so I just find that challenging to uh, actually also scale scale that. It's also challenging because depending on where the vault locations are, depending on what the services are, you're kind of very limited to that. And so I see that as us as a much more Web3-focused, Web3-centric company. At the same time, um, having that global reach, understand that global logistics uh, chain. Wow. So for so for you, sorry, Jake. So for you, you're thinking, okay, we're going to be that trusted kind of intermediary with um, the right insurance, and we can show trust. And I mean, I, I like the idea of what they did with Brinks in that the name itself um, gets you to trust, kind of in the same way that I don't know if I if I was trading whatever baseball cards, if it was a PSA, you know, who was you know holding the asset. Um, there would kind of be this like automatic trust from a consumer's perspective. Like, do you feel like uh, kind of Web2 or legacy companies have an advantage in that way and that they can, you know, kind of have that trust? Or do you feel like, no, there's an opportunity here for Web3 companies to actually be the leaders in, in that kind of aspect? I think in the early days, it's pretty obvious that the Web2 companies do, do have an existing name they can build. But I think for Web3 companies, it takes some time. I mean, look, we were, we were no joke, we actually had a stall set up at the Singapore Freeport. I don't know if Brinks is more prestigious than the Singapore Freeport. There's only one Singapore Freeport. Um, and the funny story was that Jihan Wu from Bitmain, no joke, went in and bought it. And so we're kind of on hold. So we're going to have a, a stall in a Freeport, you know. If you people know what free ports are, you can kind of Google it. It's an absolutely insane concept. There's like, I don't know, arguably trillions of dollars stored at free ports um, around the world. So the goal of the protocol is like Brinks can join. The free ports can join. You as a jewelry store can join. You as a brand like Nike can join. Right? You can participate and be part of the network and actually start minting assets and redeeming assets. So that's kind of the goal here um, is that uh, I think how this should have went down on a progression basis is that if 4K wasn't around, I think something like Courtyard, um, there's probably like 10, maybe 25 companies in the next three years. Um, some centralized version like Courtyard will try to be, will be built in Web3. This is what will happen. Maybe like three to five years from now, someone will try to build the first protocol to coordinate all these types of different actors. And so I think for 4K, it's like we just kind of jumped the line and we're trying to build this crazy concept of this coordination for all these types of various parties. And so while I think in the early days, again, Web2 might have the advantage, I think in later day, once the trust gets built, especially when we um, when we start implementing more of the slashing mechanism. So, for example, how this works is that you send in Rolex, you request your level of insurance like twenty five thousand dollars, and you know that under the care of the guardian, the physical storage facility, that if anything happens to my Rolex, that guardian gets slashed for twenty five thousand USDC and goes straight to my wallet. That has to be the user experience. What happens is Brinks loses it. They have to go through this whole like remediation six month thing like it doesn't work in web3 like web3 is like you know trustless so i know that if my assets stored stored here in 25k if they lose it damage it break it anything happens and gets stolen i get 25k instantaneously in my wallet that has to be the user experience it's very it's a very fascinating approach taking uh you know web3 practices and trying to apply it to the, the physical world uh, it sounds almost like an equivalent of kind of like a drop shipping model but for drop drop storing um, very, very fascinating. Uh, one of the companies that's on stage that's not bound by you know physical storage, but maybe has to to follow uh, a different type of storage 
is found, who's tokenizing bankruptcy claims and I'm assuming some other financial assets. Uh, Nick, would you like to just give us a, a brief history of kind of your backstory and how you led to tokenizing bankruptcy claims? Yeah, happy to. Thanks, Jake, and thank everybody else. Um, so I'm, I'm a real estate finance attorney uh, specialized in distressed turnarounds. So anytime that there's a liquidity crunch in real estate in the markets, you know, that's, that's kind of where I've cut my teeth over the years. And so I say that because my introduction to crypto would have been with Mt. Gox in 2014. And so I ended up representing some of the largest claim holders in that case. And if you're not familiar, I mean, that was you know, supposed to be the end of crypto back then. Uh, over 70% of the world's Bitcoin was trapped on, on Mt. Gox uh, when it, it went into bankruptcy. And so I, at the time, the clients that I represented and, and still you know, represent since they have not received distributions in that case to date still, um, you know, at the time, you know, I thought they were speaking Greek to me. Uh, I, I really didn't understand what they were talking about with blockchain, the ledger, and everything else. But I learned to truly appreciate it and and see its benefits. And so, you know, and just to give you an idea, I mean, the, one of my clients was the third person to ever do a Bitcoin transaction ever on Ledger. So I learned quite a bit from them. Uh, and so by that being, and in, in, you know. The, my kind of baptism by fire to this technology and over the years seeing it survive and seeing it proliferate. Uh, when the, the bankruptcy started happening, you know, Celsius and, and Voyager, um, you know, I, I really didn't see the need for, for any, you know, Web3 solutions uh, at the time. But when FTX happened, I, I could definitely see that there was massive fraud. It was going to take quite some time to sort out. And more importantly, uh, like my clients in Mt. Gox, I knew that there would be liquidity issues where people needed access to funds and that there would be payment issues with different countries and their banking systems. And so really, you know, found kind of started out of necessity that, that there's large creditors that are trapped in bankruptcy and they needed access to liquidity. And, and the typical way that you would sell your bankruptcy claim is that you'd get a phone call out of the, the East Coast of the United States, usually in New York area. Um, and, and you'd get low-balled, you know, these vulture firms, hedge funds, and they, they serve a purpose that they have a, a place, um, and, and, and they are helping people. They are, they are giving a bridge liquidity, uh, but it, it was really disconnected from the actual users and the, the, the people tra trapped in those cases. And so that's where we started building and thinking through, you know, this, this kind of new paradigm shift as to the way that debt would trade and people would access liquidity because with bankruptcy claims, again, it's highly illiquid. And generally speaking, there's not a loan product, right? Because again, with FTX, there's a lot of upside in the case. And, and at the time, I, I thought that there would be significant clawbacks for major creditors, um, that, that there would be a really good distribution in the case, not only because of the appreciation in, in Bitcoin and other crypto assets, um, but but because I saw that there would, there would essentially be um, pulling in, you know, pulling back, it's called a clawback or a preference callback in, in bankruptcy, um, but pulling this, these funds back into the estate. And so I, I, at the time was thinking that it would be around the 60 to, you know, 80 cent on the dollar recovery for the creditors. And so why would you sell your claim for five cents? Some people were selling their claims for three cents back in November of last year, um, you know, really just getting scalped. Um, and so, you know, why would you sell that if you could, you could actually take a loan out on your claim? 
so that's really where we started building up the tech stack and thinking it through from like, it's gotta be trustless. We have to have proof of reserves. It has to be full, you know, full transparency, really thinking it through from like the due diligence I would do as an attorney representing a, a fund or a client. Um, and so that's where we built out a, a data room where, you know, you use your wallet so that you're not doxing yourself and giving up um, all of your, your protected information. Um, and, and then also, you know, we had to start by putting it on a 721 or a non-fungible token uh, because, you know, at the time you can't go fully fungible uh, because of the fact that each claim is different and they're treated differently by the court. Um, and so that, that was kind of our initial approach. And so we, we started building in about March and we deployed over the summer um, and it, it's taken off. I mean, we've gotten a lot of really uh, good claims and we're onboarding even more claims. And so we've had like really good reception. And so from that, you know, the biggest roadblock that I would say we encountered is that the funds, they've never bought Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything, right? They, they're like, well, how do I even pay them? I, I just want to send them a wire transfer. And we're like, well, listen, you, you know, you can't do that. You know, they're in this country and in this country, if they receive a wire transfer for, you know, six or seven figures, that's going to cause issues for them. And it's not because they did anything wrong. Um, the reason that they're even in crypto is because of the banking system in their country and the fact that it's just corrupt. Um, and so you've got to pay them in crypto. And, and so the hedge funds initially are like, well, why don't you pay them for us? And we're like, no, that's not how this works. You need to do that. And so we had to walk them through the entire process and still are onboarding them and walking them through the entire process. And so it, it was until relatively recently, I would say that, you know, the light bulb kind of went off where they're like, they really see the ability now, oh, wait, we don't have to actually send a wire. We can actually make payment and it's instantaneous. Um, and so that, that's kind of our, our evolution, you know, just from the beginning with bankruptcy claims. And from that, we are building, we're building into debt and, and just debt, distressed debt initially. And, and we will be focusing on real estate too. Can you tell, give us an idea of like how you're actually connecting, you know, the debt to the block, like how, what's the connection mechanism or is it simply, you know, you guys as the, you are the trusted third party kind of holding that debt or, you know, I'm sure from a legal yeah. perspective, there might, could you just not go high, just high level, like what the kind of legal aspect to that is? So any transfer of a claim is, is you know, going to be regulated underneath federal bankruptcy law. And, and, and so another good point about this is, um, that under federal bankruptcy law, it's not a security. And so by trading this and, and tokenizing it, and air quotes, securitizing it, which we're not securitizing because it's not a, a security under federal law. Um, you know, that, that was another major important point for us that we could move quickly and deploy the solution while we work on licensing for other types of assets. So that's that. But, um, so this is, you know, basically we, we have the dockets. Everything is done through legal agreements. So, you know, your typical wet, wet ink agreements, which we're, we're migrating to an account abstraction and actually doing everything on chain for the execution of agreements. But for each transfer, there is a filing in the federal bankruptcy court. Um, so there's got to be a notice of transfer of claim and then an evidence of transfer of claim. And actually, we're the first ever in federal court to actually have a hashtag right for the transaction and and, and the uh, the nft with our, our qr code um filed in the federal bankruptcy docket you know evidencing it so that you can actually go and see the actual transaction on chain um for for the conveyance and so that that's what we are right now but we are working on deploying a fully fungible uh product which i'd love to talk about it's exciting 
Um, and that, that will be trustless. That, you know, we will have proof of reserves, but that would have then, these claims have been transferred into a bankruptcy remote entity. Uh, we're going to use a Navis LLC, which is what most people use for wealth planning. Um, and so those assets will be held by that entity. And then that entity will tokenize that on with fungible tokens, um, which will be freely tradable and you won't be required to do all the legal plumbing um, and sign-offs for each and every transfer. So, but each one of these is like a one-off. Each one of these has to be handled kind of like as a separate, um, separate filing, separate lifting. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And then, and the due diligence also. I mean, it's a, and it's intensive due diligence. You have to realize uh, FTX is unlike most any other bankruptcy case in one very unique aspect. The creditors are not doxed. So, imagine trying to buy a twenty million dollar bankruptcy claim, and you don't even know the identity of the party. And you don't even know whether or not they're actually a creditor that's acknowledged by the debtors. And so each and every creditor has unique issues um, that they have to prove up who they are, the, the, you know, their, their account, his screenshot history. You know, so when we initially started uh, trading these claims and, and getting our pro platform up and running, uh, you know, in a, a ch typical Chapter 11 process, the creditors have to file a proof of claim with the bankruptcy court. And so that wasn't open until around July. And so anything before that, because we deployed in, in May, you know, we started building in March, deployed in May, um, really started, you know, get onboarding claims through June. So those first, you know, 45, 60 days, the creditors, I mean, you had no idea who they were. So, you know, we were doing Zoom phone calls with the creditors, verifying their identities. We set up um, our own KYC AML uh, process through Plaid. And, and really doing like biometric and, and also if we needed to, we can order, you know, bank account records, anything else. Because again, you really have to prove up that this person is who they say they are, that they're, account, you know, they're not like a foreign protected individual. They're not on a, a blacklist, right? They're not, they're not a sanctioned country or, you know, foreign representative. Um, you've got a lot of due diligence that goes into it. And also that they're not as part of some money laundering ring. Um, cause that's also an issue when going into the federal bankruptcy court, they're going to be looking at those things to, to make sure that they, you know, that you're actually, you're coming to the court with clean hands so they can make the distributions one day. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, again, you have to do the due diligence from the perspective of a federal attorney. Um, and so that's the standards that we implemented and deployed. And initially we thought, well, nobody's going to do this. They're not going to KYC. They're not going to email. These are crypto people, you know, it, but I was like, you know, we, we've got to do it this way. This is the way it's got to. Um, and so, you know, initially we went into it doing it thinking nobody would, but we were surprised. People were more than willing to because, again, they need liquidity. They need to pay their bills um, or, or opportunity costs. They just they'll take a, a haircut, you know, a discount, liquidity discount on their claim so that they can go trade and, and, and make it up elsewhere. So that, that's kind of like the things we dealt with early on. And now things have kind of you know, calmed down in the courts and we have greater access to identity verification and other things within the cases. But it was a, just a great place to start from basically um, trading in the dark, you know, trading without knowing who anyone is in a truly tr trustless environment um, and, and trying to develop the protocol in the tech stack to actually allow people to do this at scale. Because that was another issue we ran into is how do we scale this? You know, there's, there's a million creditors, there's so many creditors. You know, there's, there's over 10,000 claims that are, that are seven figures large. Um, and so how would we be able to scale this? And that's why we developed this automated tech stack, uh, which we're still automating and doing with generative AI and other tools right now. 
um, to where it, it runs on its own. The legal plumbing and everything is is fully automated. So Nick, let me let me ask this then. Uh, right now, you guys are tokenizing bankruptcy claims. You mentioned that you want to get into to debt and some of these other financial instruments that don't ex necessarily exist on the blockchain. Uh, from a custodial perspective, um, what are the costs of that? Um, maybe paying regulatory fees or uh, maybe some other infrastructure costs? Because your guys' product's a little bit different from the other two teams that are on stage between Courtyard and 4K that are storing physical assets. You know, And you can see where some of those heavy costs come from renting the billet, the facility, or paying out banks, or et cetera. What are the costs uh, for found when it comes to tokenizing uh, financial instruments? Well, just, you know, like on each report, like if we run background checks, stuff like that, uh, obviously overhead, but we, we don't have the physical storage issues. We have more of a, a regulatory risk issue. Um, you know, obviously we're doing our own due diligence. We don't guarantee and certify that claims um, are good, right? But we are, any claim that comes and hits our platform, we've done our own due diligence on that. And so, you know, I don't know if you, you checked out how expensive bankruptcy attorneys are, but they're pretty expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think in the FTX estate, they're burning about a million dollars a day. Um, you know, so so yeah, we, we ours is more like manpower resources um, than actually having to, you know, physically store and, and you know, move uh, product. Um, but that being said, you know, the savings that's generated from this, you would normally be hiring attorneys, right? Most people, when they go to trade a claim, um, if you're a small enterprise or, or even an individual, you're usually going to talk to your accountant, you know, how am I going to book this for this year? Is it a loss or, or am I still, you know, at risk? Um, you know, or you're going to speak to your attorney. And so they're going to be billing you through the process. And then you're going to get in the other side's attorney's fees too. You know, the hedge funds usually will paper their own deals. A lot of them will trade without actually needing an attorney, but they, they, they're usually an attorney themselves. Um, you know, so that, that's what I would say are the main costs is, is it's more towards the risk side and reputational risk and maintaining a quality, um, you know, assurance level that, that everyone trusts that's dealing with your platform. Uh, fantastic to hear. Chris, I know you have uh, some, some TradFi background, your investor, collector, you know, you've, you understand the system um, pretty densely. Um, what do you think about this product? And do you have any any questions for, for Nick? Yeah, for sure. I, I was just kind of wondering what, what the difference between something like Found would be and something like uh, Open Exchange and trading it on an actual going direct to the exchange style rather than wrapping the claims and then finding a, an exchange such as Found. Yeah, so open exchange would fall, even though they're trading air quotes around, uh, you know, on an order book. Um, they're no different than a Web2 platform that you're going to have a very select pool of buyers. Okay, we're not a buyer. Uh, we didn't build our, our, our platform, you know, to, to funnel claims and, and just to be a better looking mousetrap. Um, so that that's the first thing. Second off, we, we allow you to list on any, any you know, marketplace you want to list it on. Um, we, we actually encourage our users to list them on every single marketplace at the same time. Um, of course, you buyers are going to come to our platform to do their due diligence, but it's free. You know, they can they can they come in, use the, the data rooms, access the data, look through the documents, do whatever they need to do. Um, so that's the first thing is we really wanted to give people the option to market it wherever they want to and, and maximize the value of their claims. Um, and then the other, you know, going into it even further, you know, so Open Exchange they they have a model, I believe, where they have an a separate entity that is acquiring these claims, right? And then those then are tokenized to be traded on the platform. And they're just giving them essentially a, a payment for their claim. 
um, we're actually allowing our users to receive bids 24 seven, you know, 365 and, and just tokenize their claim and have it sitting there where they can receive on chain and off chain bids from all of the funds. So, you know, they truly have no pressure to sell. They can do whatever they want. They don't have to sell at all if they want to. Um, and so it's really for them, the first step is just testing the market to see if they can get some, some, some good bids that, you know, at least test the value of their claim. Because again, each claim is different. Um, so that's what I would say the, the initial, you know, differentiating factors. The, the, now going into what we're going to deploy um, through this FTX claims DAO, we gave a grant of $50,000 to a DAO because we believe then if it's going to be fully fungible and tokenized, that the large predators need to do it on their own. We will give them a grant of funds. We have the tech that they're, they're easy to use. We will give them the contracts to deploy, uh, but it needs to be deployed in, in a regulatory compliant way. Uh, but we wanted those creditors that were going to form a DAO with those, those large claims where they're fully tokenized, which would be tradable on an order book. Um, so they could take it to any exchange they want to. If they want to take it to Kraken or they want to take it to Binance, they want to take it to Coinbase, they can take it to any exchange they want to to trade these claims. Um, and so... We wanted them to be the party that was doing that, though, so that anyone coming in and joining that DAO would understand that, you know, the other owners, the co-owners are claim holders just like them. And that to us was also scalable so that it allow us, you know, so we're kind of the custodian that's verifying the proof of reserves that these claims are valid, that the, they have all the supporting documentation, all the paperwork's been filed in the bankruptcy court with the transfers and they haven't been objected to. So they're deemed valid um, until otherwise objected to. And so, you know, that, that I would say is the big dif differentiating factors is that we, in our approach, is not to be the buyer. You know, we, we are not competing with the claims on our, on our platform. We want our users to solely just use us for our tech and our process and, and for the way that they can access greater liquidity, um, knowing with the peace of mind that, that they can, you know, we're, we're not in any way, shape or form like backdooring and buying them from our own um, exchange. How do you, how do you, um, how do you do that when the claims might be kind of very complex, right? Or do you just take a section of their claim? Like, okay, they had Bitcoin, they had Ethereum. Those are the kind of claims we're going to accept. And those can be made fungible or, cause obviously if you have a bunch of different to, you know, how do you look at that? Cause that seems like really, really complicated so, to me to try and. Right. And, that, and that's also one of the reasons that we took this approach is because I will counsel them, right? I, I will tell them what I would do. And it's going to have to be something that they vote on and they agree to. Um, but essentially, as long as it's not a SAM coin, you know, FTT um, or, or some of these other coins, you know, they're, they're going to be treated the same for the most part. It's going to be the cash value of the claim at the date and time of the bankruptcy filing. Um, and, and some creditors are not happy with that, you know, some international creditors particularly, and I just was on a long conference call last evening with some of the largest claim holders internationally, um, discussing this very issue. And so, you know, maybe there are, a, there's a sub DAO or there's a separate DAO for, for different like kinds of claims. Um, and then, so that's one approach. The other approach is of course, we can tranche it out with risk, right? So we can allocate like an A, B, C, D position, and that those can have varying rates of return or first out, you know, or they're, they're at least like 100% in full out, plus potentially an equity kicker if there's equity distribution by the estate, which it, there's, there's absolutely zero um, clarity on that as of right now. Um, and so hopefully that, that kind of answers your question. But, it, you know, I think ultimately the best approach is it, the preference risk is going to be the biggest issue. And we have more clarity since the, the debtors have filed their amended plan 
on the preference approach. So that's pretty easy to deal with um, from from you know tokenizing is on a fungible level. Um, and then and then so then the next issue is going to be of course um, you know are some excluded? And it looks like we're going to exclude like FTT and we're going to exclude some of the other tokens that are looking like they're only going to get like a five percent recovery. Awesome. Nick, Nick, I got one final question for you before I'll move over to, to Courtyard. Uh, recently, I believe in the last two weeks or three weeks, JP Morgan came out and they created something equivalent to what you're doing. Uh, I believe they called it tokenized collateral protocol or something of that nature. Uh, I just wanted to get, get your thoughts on it and then uh, how Found differentiates himself from, uh, from what JP Morgan's attempting to do. Yeah, so those are all going to be, you know, TradFi centralized. You know, it's going to be database side managed. And so our approach, obviously, is we're dealing with stuff that's more hedge fund oriented, um, you know, distressed, liquidity issues, timing is, is critical. And we're, of course, going to have much more of a bridge to, to DeFi. Um, and, and so there's more than enough room. You know, it's a $4 trillion market when it comes to, to distressed debt. Uh, it's very, very large. And so JP Morgan's not going to be dealing with, you know, bankruptcy court and federal courts. And so that's one thing that it's it, totally different from us because it's a very nuanced, you know, just a totally different animal. Um, and, and so then the other side of it is going to be, you know, there's going to be competitors in the market and that's a good thing. We, we should all want that and we welcome it. Yeah, I agree as well. It's all about grow in this current stage of uh, real world assets or tokenizing them. It's all about growing the pie together. Um, and then you can kind of divide the pie uh, later once it hits maturation. Jake, what is good, bro, man? How have you been doing? I see Zach is on stage two as well from Courtyard. Yeah, uh, good morning. Happy to be here. Brought, brought my uh, brought my partner in crime, Zach. Um, we are we are doing well. I mean, you know, we're it's been a hectic but really good time. Uh, you know, kind of. Between uh, between a few calls, but like we we are fans of you and Adam, so we we definitely wanted to come hang and and yeah, talk about RWAs. I appreciate it, Zach. We've never talked before, man. How's it going? Doing good. Uh, my my Twitter space is rugging a little bit, so I missed <laughs> the last like ten seconds. But uh, yeah, man, it's a uh, it's a good day to be playing with RWAs. Yeah, I agree as well. J- Jake, tell tell us a little bit. Um, Pretend we we didn't have this discussion about a month ago. Um, tell it tell us a little bit about what Courtyard does and how the explosion of tokenized Pokemon cards has really propelled you guys um, to be one of the, I guess it, at, at currently uh, one of the most, um, I guess say active protocols in terms of a community base. Yeah, happy to. Um, I'll I'll give some some super quick backstory. Uh, you know where. We're a Y Combinator startup. Uh, we've been building for uh, about a couple of years in the space. And at, a, at our core, what we do is we create a better collecting, a better collecting experience. Uh, so the way we started off originally was that we went out, we got $500,000 worth of Pokemon cards. We uh, struck up an exclusive partnership with Brinks for vaulting. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, we, we you know, these are, are valuable collectibles that people cherish and they, you know, they have meaning. And so people need that peace of mind and that trust that they're, they're with someone reputable, uh, years and years of history, you know, someone who's tasked with storing trillions of dollars worth of gold and silver. So really can't be beat when it comes to, to Brinks. 
And so we uh, we all left our jobs at Google, uh, Apple. We thought, you know, we, we love collectibles. We love where Web3 is going and we want to try this. So we released those in, in a drop uh, in steel packs, sold out in a couple hours. And from there, we basically started building our tokenization infrastructure. So rather than do drops, essentially allow anyone to send their graded cards to the Brinks vault and receive their tokenized card that is completely theirs to trade on chain, to you know plug into other DeFi protocols, uh, do whatever they want. But the, the only centralized element of what we do uh, is that we use Brinks. And we think that um, that's much better than, you know, having them be with someone uh, in someone's basement, you know, some random person. So uh, we essentially have been revisiting drops now uh, after getting that tokenization infrastructure down really solid. And it's been amazing. Like you said, uh, we've sold out every single drop we've done over the last couple months uh, in seconds. Typically, uh, the, the overlap between collectors in, in Web3 who who love Pokemon and who want a fun collecting experience is just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bullseye. So we're, we've been having a lot of fun with it. Our community is, you know, second to none. Uh, shout out to the ones I see in here. But um, yeah, yeah, I guess that's uh, to kick things off. Kane, Kane what's good, bro? I haven't uh, GM to you. And uh, what, what question do you have for, for Jake? Exactly. Yeah, so, sorry. I, I didn't have anything for the last guy because I've never bought slices of anyone's property before. That shit was ill. Uh, I, I'm, I'm interested, though. I'm interested in buying slices of people's misery and profiting. I want to profiteer. Um, my days of helping niggas is over. I'm here to be a pirate now. The pirate flag crazy. But uh, the, the Pokemon vault is crazy. Have you ever, and not just ask, have you ever, but is there anything in the works or have you guys considered doing anything with sneakers? only because the sneaker community is rife with fakes, frauds, or at this point, almost as much, maybe even more so than, I'll say, card collectibles. So the sure. fact that there's a digital representation of something and a real asset being stored somewhere uh, that's probably you know pressure control, fireproof, whatever, and I can trade this asset here, there, and everywhere, there's probably a big thing for that. Oh, also, outside of Pokemon, baseball, basketball cards, stuff like that. Okay, let, let, let me just say, you are talking to the right person. Uh, I'm sitting behind two shelves right now, floor to ceiling with sneakers. Uh, I, I'm a huge sneakerhead. If you scroll back on my Twitter history, like I, I post my pickups. I, I've, I've been into it for years. Uh, so the, to answer the question, we, we've tried it. We, if you go to sneaks.world, uh, you'll see an experiment that we ran with Courtyard. We went out and did, t took the same approach. Sneakers vaulted at Brinks and we released them on chain. Um, you know, like we're, we're really trying to bring collectibles to life in the digital space so we don't just take pictures. You know, we put a ton of effort into the 3D modeling and, and give collectors something special that they own digitally. So we tried it with sneakers. Uh, we I think we sold out most of the supply, but it, it, the appetite, at least at that time, wasn't there like it is for Pokemon. Granted, this was also at like right when the Bears started in um, like kind of like mid spring, summer, twenty twenty two. Like things were, it was just a perfect storm of not great factors. So uh, potentially something we'll revisit in the future. Right now, we're, we're heavily focused on cars, graded cars specifically. Uh, so Pokemon being definitely the biggest one, but we also let people tokenize any kind of graded card. So if you go to courtyard.io, you'll see our marketplace. Uh, you'll see all the different categories. There was a LeBron James card that we just sold yesterday. 
uh, for like 69, 69. So great, great price for that, that seller. Uh, <laughs> and, and that was a, you know, an amazing card. There's a couple of one of one, uh, LeBron James rookie cards in there. There's a one of one, uh, Aaron judge rookie card. So it, it's been awesome to see what people are bringing to the, to the bench vault. What's good, Chris, what's on your mind? Hey, yeah. So kind of for, for courtyard and for Richard, um, you know, everyone's been talking about tokenizing these assets for years and years. And just kind of recently, there's been this huge explosion of, you know, this macro trend of everybody, even institutions kind of talking about finally tokenizing real world assets. So what was kind of the big dif differentiator that that kind of made it possible now? Why is it continuously blowing up now and really catching the hearts and minds now rather than, you know, the previous five, six years? I think, you know, I guess I'll, I'll jump in with that. You know, I don't know about the, the last five to six years. I think the market just as a whole needs to mature, right? Um, and there's this, any sort of new technology, there's early adopters, there's people experimenting with things and just trying, trying to generally figure out how it works. Um, what I can say as it pertains to the last few years uh, with courtyard building, you know, this isn't something that we just like launched overnight and all of a sudden everyone's doing this and playing around with Pokemon cards on chain. This is something that we spent a lot of time building and refining um, leading up to this point. And it's, it really was a combination of a perfect storm. You know, if we look at Web3 leading up to sort of like this resurgence of like what's going on with the Bitcoin and Ethereum ETF, what's sort of generally happening in crypto Twitter, uh, there wasn't a much going on. And I think people, you know, all the tourists left, there was nothing to do. Um, people were trying to figure out what was left, of, you know, what they could do with their bags. And all of a sudden, this new sort of nostalgia-driven uh, memory pops into everyone's mind of like, oh, well, I can go back to my childhood. These cards have a lot of value. Uh, it's a multi-billion dollar asset class. And I love Web3. So it just became this really powerful, perfect storm of nostalgia, of physical assets that really are valuable. And if you think about it, you know, we get made fun of because we're JPEG collectors, but the, you know, the card collecting community refers themselves as cardboard collectors. Uh, so there's a lot of that underlying sort of like self-deprecating humor and just recognition of like, these are all objects that don't have any innate value in themselves. They have value because people pour their emotions into it, their memories into it. And that's why nostalgia is so powerful. Um, so that's why we see here, you know, obviously this is an amazing wave. We're seeing so many projects now trying to capitalize on this. And we're just heads down trying to refine and improve that collecting experience, make it easy for anyone to take their collection in their pocket wherever they go. Yeah, so I was going to comment on that. Like, um, I think there's a few things. One is uh, market timing, I think, is the key thing here. Um, and so the technology was relatively young, right? I think in 2018, NFTs came out, so it's still pretty young. And I think what's happening is if you go to these trading card conventions, you know, I was at Comic Con, I went to these collectibles conferences, it's so interesting if you visit there. There's absolute pack, you can't get a ticket. And if you go there, there's not a single software company, a SaaS company of sorts let alone any financialized institutions. So the crazy part I always say is that you can go out and finance a $5,000 car, but you can't finance a quarter million dollar watch. You can't get a loan against a quarter million dollar watch. It's, I mean, you can go to a pawn shop, 1 to 200% APR. Uh, you know, the one I inquired recently was 2% per week. So what they're charging at a 30 to 50% LTV at best. And so it's absolute predatory. So I think people are to get to the point where they're waking up and they're like, hey, wait a minute. Uh, you know, Kono 24 for watches charges six and a half percent for the buyer, seven and a half percent for the seller, plus sales tax. They booked $1.7 billion revenue or $2 billion revenue, $175 million in profit. 
And you look at eBay as well. You look at StockX. I'm sure you're a secret collector. You understand the, the gravity of fees that StockX go to these other platforms are charging. People are like, hey, this is some bullshit. Right? This is 2023. Why are the fees so high? And two, it's like, well, why aren't there any type of financial tooling? Why is there no financialization? Why can't I get a loan against my you know, quarter million dollar secret collection? Why can't I you know, finance this or lease that or do this? And so I think the natural progression is going to be coming into this. And I would say that it just takes time because this is such a, it's a new category. It's a new, I think, paradigm. And so it, it, there's a huge education cost. So a good example of this, I think, is if you look at electric vehicles. Ten years ago, early days of Tesla, people were like, EVs are stupid. You know, it's not going to work. And nowadays, you look at the absolute adoption rate and market saturation. So I think it's going to come. It's going to come, come. And then it's actually, this is just the early days. This is like, um, you know, really early canary in the coal mine indications. I think in the next few years, in the next decade, we're going to see an absolute explosion of this. We're going to see on-chain ETFs. We're going to see on-chain synthetics. We're going to see gambling markets. We're going to see all sorts of companies, hundreds and about thousands of companies built on top should be able to interact with physical assets in a completely new fashion, in a completely new way, and offer a far better consumer experience, but also far more consumer services for people who actually are into these assets. Keep in mind that this asset class of general collectibles, somewhere around like three to four hundred billion dollars a year, is one of the largest uh, asset classes that has virtually zero financial tooling. Wow. Yeah, Adam and I come from the background in Dogfather too, who's on stage of this like historical NFT community, and I believe. It- the tokenized real world assets goes all the way back to 2014 on Counterparty, or at least the the earliest experimentation. Although on Counterparty, right, it's quite limited because there's no smart contracts on there. So you're essentially taking somebody's word that this token then represents this this real world asset. Um, going back, this is kind of where where I hang out. Kane hangs out on Counterparty as well. Uh, do you have, do you have a question for uh, anybody on stage, bro? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, just to say, technically, everyone on Counterparty is using the same one smart contract, mm-hmm. but sure. whatever, you know, six one half a dozen of the other. Um, and the origin of why you know the Pepe community was using Counterparty, it solved really what this technology is trying to solve, which is, you know the eBay problem, which is how do you you know make this a little bit cleaner, a little bit easier, and and prevent counterfeits, obviously, but. I would just advise, not to advise, I'm not an advisor, but, you know, I, that shit is corny. And, like, I'm not a consultant. I'm just a guy that lives here. I say words, and sometimes they're good words. Fucking don't let that bear shit. That's all fake. And I know that's, listen, if you're holding a bag, yeah, okay, cool. You ain't lose to yourself and blah, 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 whatever mantra you tell yourself and, you know, cope. But for people building shit, None of that shit's real. It's all fake. Yo, in good times, I buy liquor. In bad times, I buy liquor. In good times, I buy vinyl. In bad times, I buy vinyl. There are certain things in this world that just are. They are necessity items. When the economy's doing great, I buy a pair of sneakers because I'm doing good and I can afford to buy a pair of sneakers. When the economy's doing bad, I need to buy a pair of fucking sneakers because it's the cheapest way for me to feel really good about myself that I buy a new pair of fucking sneakers. So I'll buy the Jones Beach Air Force Ones that have the map of Long Island. So everywhere I walk is Long Island and I can just show people the bottom of my foot and tell them to get the fuck out of Long Island because everywhere I'm standing is now Long Island. And that makes me feel good in my spirit. The ability to tokenize certain things. So good example, vinyl. And I know that's not probably what you guys, maybe you're thinking, and I'm not saying that you should do vinyl, but I'm just telling you, vinyl 
being traded fast and easy is a wonderful fucking thing. Especially for people who are tired of getting crushed in like the vinyl arbitrage of different currencies and some of these websites we have to buy on. So like the ability to buy in crypto would be a big leg up. Also to know that what I'm getting is real and not bullshit is also a big leg up. Um, the bear market isn't, it, it's not real for the thing you do. Because what bro, you do market, is, have you heard, bro? The bear market's over, man. Did you, <laughs> you, did you miss what happened yesterday, bro? <laughs> uh, man, listen, I, I was, I was also in going parabolic space. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that was, that was a lot of fun. By the way, really fun to hear him figure out Twitter spaces live. Okay. Like, How do I bring people up? That was very That's fun. Funny. But, but yeah, I don't think that the bear market is real for, for, for necessity businesses like this. What you're talking about isn't, Lamborghini dealership. It's it's deli, and good times, bad times. Delis always thrive. It's uh, it's it's bar, it's strip club. It's things that we're always going to do no matter what the economy's doing. And I think that a, a tokenized way to deal with assets that are valuable that we always will care about that are not necessarily, even though most people who are not into those niches would consider them luxury items like Pokemon. I'm not a Pokemon person because I'm 41 and, you know, I, I kind of stop around Darkwing Duck, my nigga. Like, when you start going past, let's get dangerous and blather and blather sky, I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I lose interest. I, I'm not a, you know, an anime guy. But for people who are, it's a big deal. For Pogs, like Pogs are making a resurgence. For people who played Pogs and were doing the slammers and whatever, I didn't do that either. I shot CeeLo. So if you did Pogs, that's a thing. For, for Dragon Ball Z and I'm sure all Yu-Gi-Oh! shit that I don't remember, that's all important to the people in those niches. So good times, bad times, they always want them. A yeah. safe way to transact, I don't think that's necessarily market sensitive as much as it is. It's more, it's, it's, I think it's more difficult to get people interested into things that are crypto related on the surface when things aren't going super duper well. If we're trying to onboard them in the get rich quick scheme style of onboarding that's ever so popular with PFP people. Yeah, but but when you onboard no, I, people I, for value, it fucking matters and it's way easier. Yeah, I think you're right in in that like 2021 was so important that it kind of awakened a whole bunch of new people to, you know, crypto and what NFTs are and educated people on what NFTs are to make this possible, right? This idea has been around since colored coins, right? We're talking like 2013. It's been around for a decade. It's like all these things had to come in line so that People who are actually Pokemon collectors are also familiar with NFTs, right? So that it would work or with Rolex watches that, hey, wow, I should be able to, you know, tokenize my Rolex watch and not get completely, um, you know, raped getting a, a loan at like a pawn shop or something like that. It's like this, the the kind of two two worlds had to collide. And I think they collided in 21 and it's finally like it's time for these companies to to finally rise and we're seeing it like this is this is like perfect timing it's amazing i yeah, just, uh, just, just right. want to think right now we're just starting things but what's going to happen in the near future is going to be added incentives so i think um you know right now the hurdle to learn uh you know of these services and the reasons why you should do them are quite high Right, they're quite high. role X is like complicated things. Like why you got to go through sort of education basis. But I think in the next six months to a year, we're gonna they're gonna see a dramatic improvement in that. Not not on an education front, but no, on a, but on an economic front. What I mean by that is, um, imagine you know 
you start receiving, imagine like if you guys are familiar with vampire attacks, like with Sushi Swap with the Uniswap, imagine you start a vampire attacking Web2 liquidity. So you start creating token incentives to tokenize your Pokemon cards. Maybe if it's a dollar, maybe we won't do it, but let's say if it's $100 in tokens that are invested over one period of time, people are going to do it. And that's going to, I think, kick off the entire, um, you know, kind of like a DeFi bubble to some extent where there's hundreds of companies that will be offering token incentives to tokenize physical assets or other types of RWAs. Um, and they're going to compound on each other. They're going to interact with each other. There's going to be some synthetics on synthetics on synthetics. And that might be a catalyst for the next bull run or a falling bull run. But I think that is not something that is quite well understood, but it definitely will happen where this, um, you know, added economic incentive, because what fundamentally crypto is, if you think about it, what token represents, it is a first time a group, collective, company, brand, community of people have a kind of an economic weapon where they can create a token for nominal value, which is zero, and create value out of it. And so that hasn't been able to do that in the history of you know, Web2. Like you had to create an e-commerce website, you had to sell a product, make a merge on it. You can create your own currency of some sorts or your own token of value to promote that. So we have this economic weapon. So that is going to, I think, will be um, utilized in the future. And I think it will be utilized in a way that's for better or worse. I think it's going to cause calamity in the markets, in the collectibles markets. Um, I think Web2 companies are going to... Um, you know, ship themselves in the next three years or so. Um, they're all going to have to scramble to find a way to plug these holes and to defend themselves against the type of, uh, you know, economic uh, attacks, arguably. Um, I think it's going to cause uh, panic. But what, is fundamentally is gonna, what it fundamentally is doing is that it is fundamentally shifting or moving the entire dynamic of the market where we are moving from a Web2-based market system of these type of collectibles into a Web3-based market system. It might take three years, five years, I think over a period of time, the value addition the, is about 10x improvement in every type of form, cost, orderless, DeFi interactions. It's too great of a value add for this transition to never happen. And so I think with an added token incentive and token economics incentives, it's going to accelerate this. And I think we're going to see, I think, I can't wait to see what's going on. It's going to be, it's going to be a shitstorm. I think I'm excited. Uh, just to jump in, Kane, I just want to say, uh, your comment about the Long Island Air Force ones made my day. I'm uh, from, from Long Island, so that was amazing to hear. Where are you uh, from? I uh, grew up in Sayosset. I got to uh, I got a jump. Your football uh, team was trash. I just want to say that to you. As a I, friend. No, no, as a I, friend. I, I, I mean in, that from the heart. I was in jazz band, so so no offense taken. William uh, Floyd. No, but go ahead. I got a I got a balance. We were planning something big for the community, and we have a, a call right now about it. But um, Jake and Adam, thank you so much for having us. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, if you have any interest in getting in on the collecting experience we're building, the jobs we're doing, we, we'd love to have you, we'd love to educate you on Pokemon, regardless if you're 41 or 20. Like, there, there's there's room for everyone. Um, so, yes, yeah, uh, well, just follow us on Courtyard, come in our Discord, and, uh, yeah, talk to you guys soon. I'll shoot you a DM, and my, my nephew taught me the word Charizard. I don't quite know what it means. It sounds like a vegetable. <laughs> right. Appreciate Later. it, Jake. Appreciate it. Uh, What's up, Nick? You have something to say around your mind? Yeah, so, so I was going to comment on the incentives, and this is actually something you know, that I, I didn't touch on earlier. So I'll, I'll give you an example of three ways that you can incentivize stuff from, from you know, why would you do it in Web3 or you know, why would you do something with the DeFi slant? Um, initially, of course, there's airdrop farmers, right? So if you've got a bankruptcy claim, you know, so you got a million-dollar claim, you tokenize it, 
you're on the protocol, you sit there for so much time, you may be rewarded for that. So there's the initial incentive, right? That's what the vampire attack we referenced recently. Um, of course, the, to- the protocol's got to be doing well. There's got to be significant revenue. There's got to be actually something there that gives you promise as to the token being valuable going forward. So you have to have faith in the team. Um, and so then the second thing, and this is actually what we've been able to do that's not easy to scale, you know, traditionally. And that's with a bankruptcy claim, you know, typically your unsecured creditor is out of the money entirely. They're called a fulcrum creditor. Fulcrum creditors in a Chapter 11 process are usually paid out five to 10 cents on the dollar, um, essentially bribed by the secured creditors. They throw them some money so that they'll vote in favor of their restructuring plan. Um, so typically your vote has value because they've got to get the votes of the creditors who are not going to get anything. Uh, that vote counts more than any other party's votes. Um, so they will generally send them some money just for them to vote. Uh, so what we're able to do with the, the fungible tokens is we're actually able to do an airdrop of a voting rights token and above and beyond the economic rights. So that's not easy to scale normally. Actually, there's a startup that's now doing for shareholder rights, that, you know, being able to buy their voting rights. Um, and just for a typical corporate governance structure. Um, so what we've been really working on and refining for, for this DAO that's going to be doing a fungible token on the FTX claims is that, you know, the power to actually tokenize your claim, still have your rights to your economic recoveries, um, plus then the diversification benefits. There's a bunch of other benefits actually having these claims together, working together. You can assert your rights in the case easier because you're kind of working together as one larger body. Uh, but then to also do an airdrop of a voting rights token, you can then sell if you want to because you don't really care. You just want your money. You could care less about punishing, you know, the debtors or anybody else. Um, so that's instant value creation. That's not something you're going to see traditionally. And so, you know, the hedge funds, obviously, they're getting really excited about that. They see interest in that because they actually know that some parties are out shopping around trying to buy claims because they want to assert the vote. Uh, so there's that, right? So then the third thing I will say, another bucket that we're, we're currently working on and exploring is the royalty structure on the non-fungible tokens that can be used to actually capture some sort of, if you put a tax on the fungible tokens on whatever product you design there. So normally when you would sell your bankruptcy claim, you, know, you wouldn't really see any more upside after that. You can do what's called a participation agreement, which is I've structured a lot of those, which is where you sell, you, know, you, you give up like a liquidity preference, so you get something up front. And then you get you you share with the the buyer or investor um, like 50-50 on any recovery above a, a watermark or a threshold marker. So essentially you're you're like partners, if you will. So what you can do though with the royalty structure is you could actually set it up on chain, right? Where you can actually get part of the tax on subsequent transfers. It's obviously it's enforced, it's automatic, it's not something it can't be transferred without it. Um, so that's that's another you know pool that we're looking into right now because where you're going to see some high frequency trading because that's ultimately what we're trying to get towards is to allow these to trade at a higher frequency uh, that allows somebody to actually sell up front and then continue to to recover over years and so that would be powerful like in the Mount Gox um, you, know, you know circumstance right where these in 2014 a lot of these claims have traded hands several times and if you'd actually had this stuff on chain back then. You would have seen, and I think I would, I would argue, you would have seen a higher frequency of trading, um, each and every bubble, each and every you know trend and cycle, and so you know that that I will say you know because again we we tend to talk about tokenization like that's the value that that's not really the value. Yes, the tech matters, 
Um, but I think that's stuff that's sexy to engineers. What's sexy to people like me that, that's like, you know, investor or an attorney is actually value creation and also values found in being able to do things and scale them a, a lot faster um, versus, you know, your typical human resource intensive um, administrative process. So those are the things that I, and of course, then I wouldn't, I also have to mention you know, automated trading strategies. That, that's huge, right? And the ability to do derivatives, also extremely huge. Um, so those are things that we just can't lose sight of. And it's going to take time. It takes years. You know, when the internet was first adopted, it didn't just happen within three to five years. In crypto, I've noticed this, that people expect things to happen instantaneous just because the technology is that fast. But unfortunately, the technology requires human beings and human beings take time. And when you're dealing with large corporate structures, you know, they need to see things proven in the markets before they're, they're going to change their database management and adopt it. Um, so, you know, with patience, we'll get there. And, and I'm, I'm definitely, obviously, I'm here. So I obviously see value in it. And, and more and more, um, uh, you know, air quotes, boomers are going to start adopting this over time. I'm not a boomer officially. I'm, I'm, t I'm, I'm like a millennial, I think. I'm, um, but, but you're going to see it. So, but we got to keep carrying it forward. And I think we need to be realistic about talking about it's true, the true value proposition, like airdrops or creating new value through like voting rights or, you know, ability to earn over time through a royalty type structure. Um, those are the things that ultimately alert the consumers, the people that actually have a claim or, or have an asset that they're thinking about tokenizing. Those are the things that get them excited, not just saying tokenizing. Because again, they're going to go tokenize it for what? Why would I do that? Why am I going to run through a burning brick wall, you know, potentially risk my body, you know, just to tokenize it, just to say I tokenized it. They have to see the value proposition. So that's extremely important. So thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Dogfather, uh, do you have a question? Um, not the question, more a comment. So it's really fascinating. Um, I love to hear about all these developments and particularly these large markets. I mean, $4 trillion of distressed debt, man, that's like uh, double or even triple the size of the whole crypto market. And even if you just tap a few percent of that market, that's huge. So uh, I love to see what, what you do in the next years. Um, I, I'm not too much active in, in that market on my own. Uh, one thing a few friends of mine are doing, uh, they investigate the chances of tokenization of carbon credits. Is any one of you interested in that or know a bit about that? Because the the thing I know about that is that it's really hard and nothing really picked up. That you reference some of the NFT borrowing and lending platforms like Arcade and X2Y2. I was curious what type of volume you see there uh, and the trade-off of people just buying and selling these tokenized bankruptcy claims versus borrowing and lending. So, you know, that again is that's what I've been working on is, is trying to, to really get some lenders to, to dedicate some capital towards this. There's huge demand. Um, we would see way more tokenization for people to access a lending product. Um, and so right now, there, we've had like one of our, our claimants actually get a loan so they can go to an Azuki party. Vegas. Uh, I was there for things. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, they actually got a loan for that. Uh, it was interesting. Um, and it's, it's, to me, it's a no brainer. I mean, that's actually a claim acquisition strategy, right? Because you can give a, a lower LTV, give a loan on the claim. You can do a pretty high interest rate because it is high risk. It is in bankruptcy court. Nothing's guaranteed. Um, and then if they default on it, obviously, you know, you've got the full faith and confidence of the federal bankruptcy court. 
um, as to making sure that you have like a perfected security interest. Um, so, so it's actually, I think we're going to see a lot of growth there. I do not think that like FTX, it, we're looking at maybe best case scenario is August of, of next year. They're saying July, but they've continued to push out the deadlines. So I think as more and more people realize that, you know, there's opportunity costs they're missing out on here with the markets pumping and other things going on, um, they're, they're going to want to access, uh, you know, loans on chain. Um, so, you know, with the fungible, I will say, so the non-fungible, obviously, you still need to do legal agreements, right? You still need to file the bankruptcy court for every transfer. You file a notice to transfer a claim for partial security um, under 3001 of the code. Um, but what you will see with the fungible is there's been UCC changes, right? And so that's the Uniform Commercial Code. It's for you know, typical secure transactions um, for, for non-lawyers non out there. Um, and so the actual UCC amendments changed to actually say that custody of the digital asset, the, the, the fungible tokens, is perfected security interest. So it just that what all this to give, you know, some some broad strokes here macro why this is important is because if you're a lender you're going to do your due diligence on that specific creditor to make sure that that asset's not leaned so they don't have an irs lien a tax lien they don't have like they're not in bankruptcy court right because if you pledge um, an asset that's in the bankruptcy court for for a loan that's a violation of federal laws so the automatic state provisions so there's a lot of things that secured you know creditor attorneys taking into consideration when deciding whether or not to extend um, credit on an asset. And so as, as you know, I've been talking to uh, one of these funds about designing a loan product, that's obviously things we have to think through because it's, it's gotta be a, a bona fide, you know, financial transaction. It's, you know, abides by law. Um, so when you do the fungible um, product, you're able to actually do those loans. And if there's a default, obviously taking possession of the digital coin, um, that's sufficient to, for the transfer of the asset. Uh, that's really important versus obviously with the filing in the bankruptcy court, then you got to file again for the transfer of the asset due to the default on the loan. They could then object to that. There's a 20 day period that the creditor, the, you know, the, the borrower could object in the federal bankruptcy court. Um, just basically there's more contingencies versus doing the, the, you know, fungible token route. So I think as we, we work towards deploying that, we're going to see uh, an increase in volume. We're going to see an increase in demand. Um, and, and ultimately, though, it, it just takes time. And it takes you know, a huge education process with everybody involved. The way, the way that you speak about it makes me very excited, um, especially as somebody who, who prefers tokenized Pokemon cards, but tokenized bankruptcy claims sounds you know, quite, quite intriguing. Expanding a little bit outwards and, you know, kind of looking uh, maybe a few years down the road, um, bankruptcy claims is just, yes, it could be very lucrative. It could be billions of dollars like you see with FTX, but it's still a small segment when it comes to traditional financial instruments. What do you think is the largest market to bring on change when it comes to TradFi um, and tokenizing um, some of those financial products? Obviously, bonds um, huge. So you see the bond bond markets kind of start adopting this. But again, a caveat: a lot of this is going to be back end database management, right? There's going to be a lot of centralized processes, uh, just because that's how these organizations operate. They're they're not DeFi organizations. Uh, they have to do this because they have fiduciaries and all these other responsibilities, um, and plus just standard operating procedures. 
Um, so it bonds. Uh, I think right now, one of the things that I have a meeting later today about is actually for hard money on the real estate side of things. Um, so, you know, obviously we've got a high interest rate environment right now. Um, so people are, are especially in the real estate, commercial real estate specifically, um, there's a huge demand, you know, because credit's tightened. Banks aren't making loans as easily, especially for commercial space. Uh, so there's there's a lot of demand right now for hard money, which just means higher interest rate, um, shorter terms um, uh, product. And so I think that as more and more people want to access those interest rates just as a, a lender, um, being able to pool their funds um, to do that, you're going to be able to see a, a higher or at least an initial demand for people wanting to go through the friction of tokenizing or um, anything related to it, the education, whatever is required um, for, for a product like that. Um, so special situation type financial products, I would say. Uh, and those are usually around distress. Um, so that, that's what I would see. It's bonds, obviously, but that's going to be more in a traditional TradFi uh, institutional uh, sense, which is going to be more centralized database management. Um, but when it comes to stuff that's going to be freely tradable and international, I think that you're going to see people wanting to enter like the United States markets for something that's a good asset, like commercial real estate in the United States, um, that they, they want to design like hard money product. Um, so that's what I see initially. I mean, one of the things we're working on, obviously, is I do a lot of real estate. Um, so we've been working on for rent, you know, fractional real estate. This is a good way of thinking about tokenization in general. People think, well, you just tokenize the real estate and, and people are going to want to buy and trade it because it's freely tradable. You know, they think of like, you know, collectibles and all these other things. They don't realize is usually there's got to be a transfer of the asset into another entity. It's a taxable event. There's, you know, got to go through friction, talking to your advisors about that, pay them too to do that. Um, and, and so like, you're going to go through all these transfers and do all these things just to potentially see high, greater liquidity. That's not how it works. There's got to be an immediate incentive that really incentivizes and, and, and gets somebody to lift a finger to go through these things that are extremely cumbersome. And not, not to mention the risk, since again, there's not a proven market. So it's like, okay, I'm going to be the first person to Mars um, and get out of my you know, vehicle and walk around and, and, and explore this for what? What is there like incentivizing me to do it? Um, so what we've been working on is truly designing something that is based on incentives, that, that does not have the friction. And, and what that would be is something along the lines of everybody pays rent. Um, you know, renters are more and more, it's an increasing population. It's harder to own. We're in the middle of the, it's the least affordable homeownership period in the history of the United States. And internationally, by the way, too. It's not just the United States problem. Um, so... Essentially, people have less access to ownership in real estate and getting the benefits of that. And, and so and then so that's one component. The second component is most people think of owning your home as an investment. It's not. It's actually a terrible investment versus your, your other opportunities. Uh, you'd actually save way more money renting and then investing your free cash into an actual real estate investment, which actually gets you cash flow and writes the revenue stream and, and the tax advantages, too. Um, plus, you can actually treat it like an investment because you can sell it at the top of the market instead of having to stay there because your kids are in school or, or what have you. And so what we've been looking at is that there are not sufficient incentives in rentals 
um, for, for, you know, and what I mean by that is you don't really see rewards programs for people paying their rent. Um, and, and, and that's important because collections in the United States alone are increasing substantially. They used to be around one to 2%. They're right now around 5%. And that's a $44 billion problem in the United States alone, just with collections. And so landlords, you know, a lot of my clients are trying to think through ways that they can incentivize people to actually pay their rent or even prepay their rent. And so it really wasn't possible until recently with generative AI, where you can design these matching algos to where you don't need realtors, essentially, right? Especially in renters, you're going to need realtors in the, the buy sell side of real estate because, you know, there's, it's way more emotional. And there's just some things that they're actually good at, like knowing an inspector or or knowing, you know, the right person to call to get to get the, you know, the mortgage situation worked out. Um, so in the rental aspect, the more you can automate that and the more you can match people with properties, the more savings you can generate um, through reduced commissions. And, and just obviously by leasing up your property and, 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 and having a higher vacancy, you know, driving the vacancies down. Um, and so what we've been looking at is actually giving people rewards of fractional real estate ownership um, by paying their rent on time. And so, so kind of like acorns, like where you can round up your transactions and, and you're able to then earn stocks, um, actually making it tied to real estate where you can be a renter and actually start accruing equity and, and good real estate investments. Um, that's important because now you can live wherever you want. You don't have to be in a rent to own situation, which means typically that's an options contract structure to where you're paying the rent You've got an exercise rights where you can you can exercise your rights to purchase that then home you're renting um, at a, at a you know earlier defined price, and so what that means is if you were to actually breach your lease or move away from that property, uh, you you kind of lost your your air quotes equity that you built up towards that purchase. And our you know thing we're exploring, you could pay rent anywhere in the entire world and still be earning fractional interest in real estate. That you could then have fun managing and learning about, you know, real estate investment um, in, in general, and so that's that's kind of like the way we've been looking at things: is what can we do to help people that are in, in difficult situations? Obviously, with FTX, you know, over fourteen billion dollars trapped liquidity, people that need help. Um, so we designed a product there to help them. With renters, you know, what are the issues that they're facing? And what are things that can be done to actually pass through some of the savings to them for the good actors that are actually trying to um, do the right thing, pay their rent, and, and want to build equity and want to build their, their credit, want to build their rental, rental history. So that, that's kind of like what the way we've been looking at it, which I wouldn't say is like your typical way of looking at things. But that's just from my own you know, background and experience and in dealing with these things. That's the first thing I say to myself is, why the hell is anyone going to go through this pain this brain pain and this heartache to tokenize. Like what, what does that even mean to them? They don't even know what that means, right? You know, what are they gonna go and use these digital wallets and, and risk losing it and all these different issues, the roadblocks, why would they go through that? Like there, it needs to be a great user experience. It needs to make sense for them. And they probably don't even need to know anything about tokenization, right? Their, their whole interface with the, the, the product should be something along the lines of web two, but just a good UI X. Um, and, and ultimately what the actual tokenization allows you to do is to create new, you know, ways of value, new value, 
Um, and, I, and I was talking about that earlier with the buckets, with the bankruptcy claims, with like the royalty structures, with the actual voting rights, be able to split rights and actually do airdrops of rights. And then the typical vampire attack, which is the, the tried and true you know, method of crypto, which is this basically, let's just bribe them, let's give them an airdrop or give them you know, democratization, give them ownership of a protocol. Um, so you know, obviously value creation. So that's, yeah, that's at the, the end of the day, they have to, the reason is money. They're going to make money. Exactly. Right? They'll figure they it out. They will do money. anything. I mean, we've learned, man, people will jump through massive hoops as long as there's a bag of money on the other side of those hoops, right? I mean, we've seen yeah, it again and again. but just look at how many things that we just keep beating the drum of tokenized RWAs. There's going to be trillions and billions of dollars. <laughs> well, what's that mean for you, right? These are going to be centralized databases. It's going to be like IBM hyperfabric or whatever they want to call it. Um, it's not going to be something due to the realities of regulations to where you're just freely trading this on Uniswap. Um, and, and so the way we look at it, again, is like we are all about DeFi. We want to work towards that in a responsible way. But first, we want to get product market fit. We want to make sure that people actually enjoy using it and are thrilled to use it. And, and for me, that just goes down and it comes down to incentives. Um, everyone's re really happy during the pump, right? <laughs> but when the pump kind of goes away, like what else is there for them other than community? And so that's where I think that a lot of these things can kind of galvanize and, and, and get everybody working towards the same, you know, the right, the right direction. Yeah, very, dude, very, very, very eloquent way to explain all of this, make it very fascinating. I got one final question for you and then, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. Uh, Adam and I and Chris, right? We work uh, at Emblem Vault. It's a multi—you call it a multi-chain protocol that allows you to trade NFTs from any blockchain on any blockchain. You know, we believe that this is important because it allows you to access liquid, take take assets, whether it's to a tokenized bankruptcy claim or tokenized debt or bonds, and then go access more liquid li liquid markets or ones that have more competitive rates. Uh, how do you look at? The kind of multi-chain thesis um is it something that you um that you guys discuss in terms of your business model and kind of where the progression of the, the blockchain industry is going yeah i mean definitely we we believe in it we're agnostic overall as a chain i mean i will say one of the issues that we ran into just this is again this is a real world issue that real world assets are facing with the millions of creditor claims just in FTX, because we have a bunch of other cases that, that we have on our, on our platform right now, um, and we can add them easily because we're automated. We have a way to actually source these claims because in a bankruptcy case, normally the creditor's name, their address, all their contact information is listed with the, their claim amount. We can fully automate bids on chain to every single creditor in the case, right? And so we were going to do that right? We were going to mint every single claim. But we realized the second we do that, we just crashed OpenSea. <laughs> like they cannot handle that amount, you know, that volume. And so we immediately started thinking through, okay, well, uh, that's a problem, right? We, we can't have all real world assets on chain if it's going to be on an L1. Um, and, and so that's where the infrastructure has to improve. So yes, we do believe in, in cross-chain and being able to access liquidity where you wish and want to, because that's the way the real world works, right? That's the whole point of it, is, is to access greater liquidity. Um, and not only access greater liquidity through the, the, you know, markets, but also through like being able to fractionalize, right? And, and break it up into smaller pieces. 
um, so that you can actually access a greater buying power. Um, so, but I just think the technology has got to get there. So like we've been looking at L2s, right? Base and, and everything else and, and really having those discussions because we have not raised funds to date. Um, we're, we're thinking about it. Obviously we would like to do some, some rewards and incentives for our, for our community. Um, and, and I think that raising funds is important for that, um, because it, it alerts the market, like this team's legit, like we're working together, um, so forth and so on. Um, so yeah, I do believe in the cross chain. I just think that we need to see more like accessing the, the, the L2s. Awesome. Yeah. Lo love to hear it. That's the exact same thesis that we have as well. The infrastructure is still uh, immature, but you know, either this cycle or next cycle, I think it'll be uh, fully mature. Kane, Kane, what are your thoughts? Close us out here. Uh, what do you think of the entire conversation? Well, it's, it's a, it's a question that's wrapped up in there, but which, which is that if you take FTX and, and kind of what that was, the problem with FTX wasn't native crypto people. The problem with FTX wasn't really people who spend anything resembling a significant amount of time here it was it was fucking no coiners who were onboarded by matt damon saying pick up your skirt and grab your balls or whatever the fuck he said in the super bowl commercial and someone who's onboarded by that is probably you know there's a french word for it, a fucking idiot and they're, they're not smart enough to ride this ride so and I, i've seen in the last year and a half there's an increasing volume every day another decibel on the rhetoric of like they don't even have to know. Like they can just be using the tech and not know. The problem with people, you know, generally speaking, because people, you know, a person is great. People are fucking idiots. People using technology they don't understand in a space that's that exploits you for not understanding what you're using is that no one ever tells those people they can't click links. Like I, I have this argument a lot more passionately in the traditional nft space because they're typically just you know they're they're trying to really profiteer they're having a hard time doing it without a bigger supply of rubes but what with what you're selling i get it's it's a it's a crafty way around selling an investment which you know again i'm i'm, I'm here for however the people buying that while they should do due diligence into what they're buying, what the risks are, so on and so forth. There's the other side of the, well, who tells them how you move here? Because it's one thing to be onboarded in DeFi. And like I was, you know, low-key, probably 20%, 30% onboarded in DeFi. And DeFi is fun. It's cool. I enjoy DeFi. I think it's very, it's, it's a fun thing to do. I come from finance. I enjoyed it. But when no one ever says, hey, by the way, you can't click links. Hey, by the way, uh, this is not like the traditional finance space where there's recourse you can find if this happens or that happens. You are truly on your own with your assets. And if someone does liberate you of this, then you are just going to be without it. And wh where, where do you fall in terms of that? Because when it comes to people not knowing how, again, they don't have to be savants, but I think there has to be a, a general knowledge of what you're doing and what you're using if you're going to still maintain some semblance of, I know we throw around words like sovereignty, but you're lofty terms like that, but you know, not your keys, not your crypto is sovereignty. You know, you owning the things that are yours and no one else being able to take them from you or no, no one being able to write to or make a phone call to some government body and having them relieve you of, or, you know, limit or restrict your use of your property is kind of the, the tenants that the space is built on. 
that if I want to do business with someone in India, that's between me and someone in India, not my government or theirs. You know, they can stay the fuck out of it. That 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 energy has to be protected, or we're gonna just be a bunch of KYCs with the KY jelly, uh, uh, motherfuckers using just computer tech, and it's not Web three tech. So how do we prevent that while still making it, you know, approachable? I mean, I, I, first off, I think it's in the United States Constitution that you have the rights to get wrecked. I mean, so if you want to go get wrecked, go ahead. Would you, so I would say this, would you represent yourself with a multi-million dollar claim in a United States federal bankruptcy process? Hell no, you would not. You would hire a qualified, experienced bankruptcy attorney. Why? Because they know what, you could learn it, you could chat GPT, and you could try to figure it out. You could try to go to law school and try to understand the, the mountainous books of the Chapter 11 Bankruptcy Code and the rules of, of bankruptcy procedure. But you're going to hire somebody that knows what in the fuck they are doing um, to represent you because you don't want to lose your money. Uh, and so another good example, you got in a car wreck. Are you going to try to perform upper left quadrant brain surgery on yourself on the operating table? Uh, no, you're not. You're going to hire an expert. And in that case, you're not even going to hire. You're just going to trust that the system was good enough to provide you with somebody that's capable of saving your life and preserving your cognitive function. Um, so that is just like any other thing that's new for people or different. People hire people because they provide a service or offer them a good product. And it's up to us to build things that people enjoy using because it makes their life easier. I agree that people should have autonomy. It's not, I do not believe that you know, paternalism is necessarily the, the, the way to do things. But I also do understand that people have hectic lives. They're busy. They have kids. They have jobs. They don't have time to figure this shit out. And you're going to expect them to sit at home and, and you know, the baby's crying in the other room and their favorite team's on the TV. And they have other things going on and, and try to just learn through their own you know, trials and tribulations and mistakes, uh, that, that's not a good product or service. And so if there's protocols that can develop things that make their life easier, that's valuable for them. They're going to pay good money for that and they're going to use it over alternatives. Um, so, you know, as to, you know, so I think that answer is like why people pay for good products and services. The other side of it is the regulatory aspect. Unfortunately, crypto is the best product market fit for illicit activities. You will not find a better product market fit for crypto than for illegal things, as evidenced by you know all the drug trafficking that's used it for money laundering, uh, terrorist activities. So like the guy on Twitter, John Stark, he actually has a lot of good valid points about that. That being said, there are actually bona fide legitimate use cases for tokenization and crypto. And so like most everything, we will get the adoption. It's going to take time. And we're going to see that happen. So the KYC AML thing, that's just a law that we've had on the books forever. In real estate transactions, we have to impound funds and we have to think, take these things into consideration. You know, the state of Florida, for instance, made it illegal for anyone from China to even buy real estate in the state of Florida. It has nothing to do with crypto. It has everything to do with making sure that the banking activities and, you know, other domestic issues like, you know, homeland defense, um, those issues are actually regulated by the people. So that that's a totally separate issue. I still agree. You should be able to do financial activities with somebody in India. But you do need to be aware that if 
you have laws to follow. And if you don't comply with them, there are consequences for that. So elect better representatives and change the laws if we don't want that or we don't like it. And that's the, unfortunately the only thing we can do. Um, so anyhow, I, going back to the first part, I really believe that it's our job as, as builders in this space to give people a better experience and, and to build value for them. And I, I don't think it's necessarily like thinking that they're retarded. I just think that they have hectic, busy lives and they just need something that's easy and it works. So that, that's the way I view it. But the issue I will see with easy isn't that easy is bad. And for most people, easy is fine. It's that the people who come in, like Karen always wants a manager for her customer service claim. There is none here. And like, I'll take the malpractice uh, of the doctor that you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, the doctor can operate the life-saving surgery, but I go into that, that transaction knowing that if something goes wrong and they leave some radioactive shit in my chest, and I go, hey, man, they left some radioactive shit in my chest. Well, in medicine, well, you can sue that doctor for malpractice. In Web3, you just did business with a ghost. So radioactive shit in your chest, uh, uh, so give it a couple of weeks, see if you turn into an X-Man. And other than that, you might want to have somebody get that shit out of there because you might be pretty fucked up. But uh, hey, that's the price you take, man. We all get wrecked sometimes. And I think what happened, especially with FTX, was a lot of people go, well, wait a second. Well, that's not fair because accountability isn't exactly your average person's love language. Now, I live by it. And I live by the decisions that I make. I buy lots of wacky shit. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it don't. I bought a bunch of shirts during the fucking lockdown that did not fit because I bought them off of shady shit on Instagram. They were nice shirts. They're just for a much smaller man than I am. So, you know, I just, I, I put them in the aspirational section of my closet and I take the L. Everyone don't do that. And the unrealistic expectations that everything is going to work super duper awesome every single time that your average person walks into any fucking transaction with every single day, they, they find themselves wanting in this space. I understand, hey, this new technology, shit's not always going to work so well. Yo, when I first time I used Emblem Vault, just so happened to be that particular five minutes when they were fighting with OpenSea, well, essentially OpenSea was fighting with them because fuck OpenSea. And it, it, it took me going, hey guys, listen, I know you don't know me, but and Emblem Vault did a great, and it's just a you know, side, just to say nice things about Emblem Vault, but they they helped because they understood, hey, this is something that we're doing, and you know, thanks for being patient. I'm like, nah, thanks for building it. I really need it. But everyone's not like that. Some people are, hey, I tried to do this thing and it's not working. I want to know why. And when the answer is, hey, man, it's new tech, new stuff. The laws ain't exactly here. The tech ain't exactly there. Be a little patient especially in America, it doesn't, so a hundred thousand of those people in the space doesn't make shit better. And my baby agrees. <laughs> Kane, appreciate your responses. Also, Nick, appreciate you for coming on and hanging around to the very end, man. You, your product is very interesting. I gave you follow. Uh, we, I will be following along your journey um, and appreciate you for your time, man. Hey, thanks guys. Appreciate everything. Yeah, everybody have a good evening. Yeah, you, you too. Chris, appreciate you for coming on. Dogfather, everyone that hung in all the way to the end, dude. Real world assets are definitely a real thing. They're going to continue to keep growing. And uh, we're going to keep exploring, whether it's financial products, Pokemon cards, real estate. I think there's a lot um, that is left on the table. 
And for those who don't know, we host this space Tuesday through Thursday, 11.30 a.m. Eastern time, generally for about an hour and a half, which we ran over a little bit today. Tomorrow, we're talking with Kane and Brian Minecon of Pepe's. We're going to do a Pepe roundtable. We do Pepe show every Wednesday. And then on Thursday, we're holding a Spells of Genesis space with Shaban, the creator of Spells of Genesis, the first blockchain collection or the first crypto collectible collection in blockchain history. So until then, we'll see you, you guys tomorrow. Kane, I'll see you tomorrow. Ready, ready for that conversation. Till then, see you guys.